High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. When last we left Polly Platt, she had decided to try her hand at screenwriting, under the rationale that it was a job she could do at home, in Los Angeles, where her kids lived. By the time Bad News Bears and A Star is Born were released, Polly's daughters Antonia and Sashi were nine and six. It broke Polly's heart to leave them to go to other cities to work, and Antonia, in particular, really felt her mother's absence and was starting to show behavioral problems because of it. Polly decided to refocus her career hoping that it would allow her to be home more, and her relationships with her daughters would thus improve. But it didn't exactly work out that way. Her first film as a screenwriter, Pretty Baby, concerned a child living in a turn-of-the-century New Orleans brothel. The shooting of this movie not only led Polly away from home but dropped her into another family's mother-daughter dynamic that had its own complications. Then, just as Polly's home life was stabilizing, 
a horrific murder sent her extended family reeling. Join us, won't you, for part six of Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. Polly hadn't been credited as a writer on a movie since Targets, but as we've seen, she had demonstrated a feel for storytelling on every film she had worked on. She just needed a chance to prove herself as a writer. She got her first chance via Nessa Himes, a casting director who had met Polly when both women worked on What's Up Doc. She was just amazing. First of all, smarter than most people and um, knew so much about film. I think a lot of what Peter had came from Polly. I think a lot of people would say that. Um, She had enormous taste. She had enormous knowledge of film. And she started to teach me. Nessa remembers Polly screening movies for her including the earrings of Madame Da, directed by Max Ophels, and Angel, the Ernst Lubitsch film with Marlena Dietrich and Melvin Douglas, and breaking down how they worked and what the director was doing visually to enhance the story. Since What's Up, Doc, Nessa had transitioned from running the casting department at Warner Brothers to becoming one of the first female production executives at Columbia. In 1974, she was offered a place in the first-ever American Film Institute directing workshop for women, through which the AFI gave 17 female would-be directors access to equipment, tiny stipends, and the mandate to make two short films over the course of a year. In addition to Nessa, the first workshop's participants included, amongst others, Maya Angelou, Diane Cannon, Ellen Burstyn, Margot Kidder, and Julia Phillips, who became the first woman to win the Best Picture Oscar during the workshop for a movie she had co-produced with her husband called The Sting. AFI's goal for the first workshop was to only select women who were already well-known, most of them actresses, on the rationale that anyone who didn't already have that foot in the door of Hollywood wouldn't have been able to graduate from the workshop into actual work as a director. Even Nessa Himes, then a studio executive, who was also dating and would soon marry an extremely powerful man in the industry, hadn't been able to use her position of relative power to make the movie she most wanted to produce— an adaptation of Erica Zhang's revolutionary sexual liberation novel, Fear of Flying, to be directed by Julia Phillips. I mean, it's really, really like the dark ages of women directing. I did the AFI workshop as I left Columbia. I I quit at Columbia. I was getting married to David Picker, who was a major executive at that time. And um, Peter Goober and I had a big fight I was shepherding a project at Columbia called Fear of Flying. And for some reason, Peter just hated it, or he didn't want it, or he didn't want me to do it. He didn't want me to get the I don't know. It was a horrible thing. And I quit over it because he was really horrible to me. In this climate, a lot of women, Polly and Nessa included, 
didn't see themselves as feminists and certainly didn't see any benefit to calling out misogyny or sexual harassment. They didn't want to rock the boat. They wanted to be in the boat. I always believed that women were the same as men. If they did a good job, they would, they would get the job. And that's always what happened to me. So I guess Polly and I were very much the same that way. We just wanted to make movies. And it was a very difficult time because if you weren't, you know, doing the, the feminist thing and women in film and all that stuff, you were thought of as, as a, maybe as a traitor in some way. Women were supposed to just, you know, I, I, when I got married, everybody was mad at me. Oh, you're getting married? You're an executive and you're getting married? You're, you know, like I was betraying the cause. Can you believe that? Seriously, I'm serious. That's what was going on. That's why it was so hard. For one of her AFI short films, Hyams asked Polly to collaborate with her on an adaptation of a rolled doll short story called The Great Switcheroo, about two men who plot to swap wives for a night. Well, we had very similar sensibilities, but she really knew about how to make movies. She should have been the director. I should have been the writer. She should have directed. The Great Switcheroo got Nessa noticed as a director by Norman Lear, who hired her to direct the soap-spoofing sitcom Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Nessa did over 100 episodes of that show, and then she and Polly collaborated on another screenplay, an adaptation of Bernard Malamud's The Assistant. It's a terrific screenplay. I still have it. Um, and we shopped it around. You know, I'd, had to, I'd done the Mary Hartmans, and Polly was Polly. She had, was a production designer, and she was Peter, and she had real you know, credentials. And, uh, of course, we couldn't get it made because nobody thought it was commercial. By now, Hyams was married to David Picker, who was running Paramount Pictures. Paramount had signed a deal with the French director, Louis Mal, who to that point had already been nominated for two Oscars and had just arrived in the U.S., eager to make movies about his new home. Picker suggested Mal and Polly work together. And after Maul read the switcheroo script, the pair began meeting regularly. I would come to his sumptuous office with pâté, French bread, and a good bottle of Bordeaux, and we would spend hours talking. I began to ask him what about America, besides our films, did he like. He liked American jazz, he told me. The music that came out of New Orleans during the days prior to World War I. I had a book of photographs of prostitutes taken by a man named E.J. Bullock, which had haunted me for a number of years. These women were from Storyville, the district designated legal for prostitution in New Orleans during the early 1900s and where that kind of jazz was born. The expressions on the faces of these prostitutes were arresting. There was a trust in the eyes of these women. They looked relaxed and comfortable with this photographer who took their pictures in the daylight when they were not working. Some were dressed in Sunday finery. Others were naked except for their shoes. I wanted to know more about them and the man who took their pictures. I pulled the book out and showed Maul the pictures and told him I would be able to write about these characters. He could have his music. 
Polly thought back to a location scout for the last picture show, for a scene that was in the novel but not ultimately filmed, set in a bordello town in Mexico. When Polly had gone to a real such town with Peter and Larry McMurtry, she had been surprised to see that the streets were full of playing children. I conceived the idea that the story should be about the daughter of a prostitute, a young girl like my daughter, Antonia, a spirited and know-it-all child who would basically have nothing but boredom where her mother's occupation was concerned. Then we could reveal the downstairs whorehouse from the point of view of this young girl. Antonia was just nine or ten when Polly had this idea, and she was, clearly, not the daughter of a sex worker. But today, she sees a lot of herself in her mother's script. I was watching Pretty Baby, and I was trying not to be egotistical about it, but I was like, this character is exactly me. There were all these physical things she was doing as a character that I used to do, and I was like, oh, my mom just took, which is, as a writer, too, I saw. So, yeah, I mean, and then the kind of provocativeness of a young girl. Even though I wasn't having sex young, I was flirtatious without knowing it. So all those things, and innocent, but way ahead of my age in terms of experience, which Brooke Shields' character grows up in a whorehouse, so she has that. I think that was mimicking a lot of what I was seeing in Hollywood growing up in that industry. So I cried at the end because it was almost like she was talking to me from the grave saying, I love you. Polly's goal had been to work at home in Los Angeles. But Pretty Baby, pretty frequently, took her pretty far from home. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. She went to New Orleans, where she found oral histories of jazz musicians, learned about the family history of photographer E.J. Bullock, and discovered that during the time in which her film was going to be set, a girl as young as 12 could legally marry without her parents' consent. When it was time to actually do the writing, Polly repaired to a ranch house she had bought in the Arizona desert 
After filming, a star is born there. There were great thunderstorms out there in that desert, and I lived alone. Went for walks in the beautiful desert with my dog Buster, a bull mastiff. I started drinking around lunchtime, after I'd corrected the previous day's writing, and drank and wrote all afternoon. My mind was gone by five o'clock, just in time to enjoy the sunset and watch television. I made my dinner and went to bed to rise with the sun and start all over again. I was spending so much time there that I brought the children out from California and enrolled them in the one-room schoolhouse at Elgin, and they loved it. I had achieved my goal to be with my children so I would be there when they came home from school, but the damage was already done. They didn't seem happy to have me around. They had learned to fend for themselves. Besides, I was drinking excessively, starting at lunch and still unaware that I was an alcoholic. Alcoholics are not consistent. They are not reliable. They are quick to anger for little or no reason. They are like a tornado whirling through the lives of their families. I was not helping my children, but I didn't know it yet. You would think I would, since both my mother and father, dead from alcoholism, were not there for me when I was a child. But I didn't, I couldn't imagine life without alcohol. While writing Pretty Baby, Polly was thinking like a production designer and also a producer. As she told a seminar at the American Film Institute, I wrote the movie to be cheap. I wrote it all in one set, essentially, even though there are four or five other small locations. Polly would get her first producer's credit on Pretty Baby, but as was now common for her, on this film she was more integral to the production than a person with screenwriter and associate producer credits usually would be. And yet, she'd soon learn she didn't have the leeway she'd had as an unofficial producer on Peter's films. Polly had a gift for casting, and she thought the part of the photographer in Pretty Baby should go to Jack Nicholson. In the mid-70s, Nicholson was considered both a box office draw and one of the best actors in the world. He had just won his first Oscar for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which had been a massive hit. Jack would have been a pretty big get for a relatively small film like Pretty Baby, or at least Polly thought so. Without consulting with the movie's director, Polly got her script to Nicholson by going through executive David Picker. Jack read it and loved it, and Picker called Polly to tell her that the biggest star who could possibly play this part wanted to do it. I was thrilled and ran to Louis with the good news. Louis was furious. He told me he did not want to work with a movie star in his first movie in Hollywood. Stars were difficult. Louis felt betrayed that I had not consulted him about Jack. I was completely astonished and kept telling him that Jack was not difficult at all, that he, Louis, had lost his mind. Louis was adamant and I was furious. It was the end of our friendship. I was used to being respected and listened to about such things. I knew that if it were Peter directing, I would not be having this problem. My heart was broken, and I felt we had blown the movie. Nevertheless, we went forward with a real rift between Louis and me. Louis Mal's reasons for not wanting to cast Jack Nicholson may have been valid, but in hindsight, 
It also looks like he was reacting to his female screenwriter and producer taking an initiative without asking his opinion or permission. In our last episode, Polly described all male directors as being arrogant and spoiled. This may have not been entirely true of all men, but it does seem like several of the men Polly worked with expected her to be something like a housewife, coddling and considerate of their feelings, quietly doing all the work to make the man's life easier, and to bring his vision of the film to life without argument. Louis Mal was different from a lot of directors Polly had worked with to that point. He had seemed to want a real creative collaboration with her. But at the end of the day, he also wanted her to be deferential to him. And as a result, they butted heads. Instead of Jack Nicholson, the part went to Keith Carradine, who Polly dismissed as soft, a feat, wrong for the role and not a very interesting actor, in my opinion. I do think Carradine is an interesting actor, but I generally agree that Jack Nicholson would have been more interesting in this role. Nicholson was considered one of Hollywood's most masculine men in the late 1970s, and he would have brought a real sexual threat to the part that Carradine did not. However, what Carradine did bring was ambiguity. Polly calls him a feat as a pejorative, but the relationship between the adult man and child is effectively unsettling throughout Pretty Baby because it's so unclear to what extent he's motivated by sexual attraction. If Nicholson had played that part because he was so beloved as a star and so idolized as a man of the 70s, the relationship between him and a child might have seemed more romantic. With Carradine in the part... It's strange and sad. A brief sidebar. On March 10th, 1977, while Pretty Baby was shooting in New Orleans, 42-year-old Roman Polanski took a 13-year-old girl to Jack Nicholson's Mulholland Drive house, gave her a quaalude, and raped her. If Nicholson had been shooting Pretty Baby at the time, a film about men in their 40s and older having sex with a 12-year-old girl— who appears to be way too young to consent, one wonders how the discourse would have been different for Polanski, for Nicholson, and for Pretty Baby. Because while for decades we've heard that the 70s were a quote-unquote different time in which sex between adult men and young girls was normalized, there are different ways people of the 70s chose to respond to this normalization. Obviously, some men capitalized on it to feed their sexual desires and to sell imagery of the fetishization of girls and teens. But while Pretty Baby was called child pornography by some critics in the late 70s, watching it today, it is absolutely clear that Louis Mall and Polly Platt were not romanticizing statutory rape. If anything, By showing how a 12-year-old girl's body is put up for sale and then rescued by a savior who indulges in a murkier transactional relationship with her, the filmmakers use a historical microcosm to critique a then-present-day culture in which youthful sexuality was fetishized to an absurd and dangerous degree. 
I asked Antonia if she felt Polly had infused Pretty Baby with a critique of 70s Hollywood. I, for sure, because she talked a lot about that with different men in Hollywood, you know, but that was always, you know, not in public, but we all know about that and we knew about it then. And I think she was kind of disgusted with it. Yeah. What do they see in those young girls? Like, why aren't they interested in women, you know? Why, what is this thing? Um, that's really interesting. Of course, it's impossible to imagine this film being made in the same way today, with full frontal imagery of a naked 12-year-old girl in the context of a story about that girl trading on her sexuality. Back then, many questioned what kind of mother would let their daughter play such a role. Polly found the actress who would anchor Pretty Baby in a book of photographs by Francisco Scavulo. Scavulo was a top photographer of the 1970s, responsible for Cosmopolitan Magazine's infamous naked centerfold of Burt Reynolds, and for the image of Christofferson and Streisand that formed the basis of the A Star is Born poster. In 1966, Scavulo had shot images of a baby model for an ivory soap ad. A decade later, Scavulo included a topless photo of the same model, now 10 years old, in his book, Scavulo on Beauty. This model was Brooke Shields, and though she had been working steadily since that ivory soap ad when she was 11 months old, she was not yet a household name. When Polly saw Scavulo's photo of a naked, prepubescent Brooke Shields, Polly thought... She was the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen. When I wrote the screenplay, I'd not imagined such a beauty in the part. But when I saw the photo, I began to rethink the concept. I showed the photo to Louie, and he was interested, too. We flew to New York to meet Brooke, who arrived with her mother, Terry. Louie and I were hopeful that Brooke could act, and she could indeed. Little did we know at the time that Brooke's life was very troubled because of her alcoholic, volatile, and very unstable mother. Brooke Shields has written a whole memoir about her complicated relationship with her mother. Terry took Brooke to bars when she was a baby, and then later left her daughter with virtual strangers when she'd go out to drink. Around third grade, Brooke began to realize that her mom was drunk every afternoon when she came home from school. Brooke's stories are similar to those told by Tatum O'Neill about her own mother in her memoir, A Paper Life, with the crucial exception that Tatum's mother truly failed to parent her children. Though Brooke, as she wrote, felt abandoned by her when she drank, Terry remained physically present in a way that Tatum's mother Joanna did not. Still, abandonment of daughters by mothers was the major theme here. Polly had felt abandoned by her mother... She worried her own daughters felt abandoned by her, and she wrote all of that into Pretty Baby. Then, when it came time for Terry, Brooke, Polly, and the rest of the Pretty Baby crew to shoot on location in New Orleans, part of Polly's job became to separate the film's star from her mother. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, 
And then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel. And a lot of the time, my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. Polly's writing on the shooting of Pretty Baby is heavily colored by her frustration over having to intervene to keep Brooke away from Terry, who Polly is extremely critical of. Probably in part because she reminded Polly of the parts of herself Polly most abhorred. Not all of Polly's memories mesh with Brooke's memories, but by Brooke's admission, though she liked having her mom on location with her, she didn't want Terry to watch her act. Polly tells one story of a morning in which Brooke asked her to keep an eye on a drunk Terry while Brooke was shooting. We were shooting in a residential area of New Orleans, and it was only about 11 a.m., but Terry Shields somehow found a bar. She walked across the street, nearly being run over by a huge Budweiser beer truck. The driver was so enraged that he got out of the truck and accosted Terry, bawling her out as I watched. Terry put her arm through his and encouraged him to go into the bar with her, which he did. I peered in the window and watched the two of them find a place at the bar. I followed them inside. I sat down next to her. I was so alcoholic that I could have just as easily ordered a beer myself, but somehow it didn't occur to me. According to Polly, this afternoon ended with Polly in the emergency room after a belligerent Terry bit her, breaking the skin. At some point during the shoot, Terry got into a car accident. Brooke Shields and Polly Platt tell different stories about this accident in their different memoirs. Polly claimed that Terry, in violation of union regulations, insisted on driving her daughter to set every day. And one day, Terry was speeding with Brooke in the car, lost control of the vehicle, crashed, and when a policeman came on the scene, Terry slapped him and was thrown in jail. Polly claimed she refused to bail Terry out of jail. As she wrote, with unacknowledged irony about her own life, Somewhere along the line, I had learned that alcoholics need to face the consequences of their drunkenness. 
Brooke seemed to understand this. She almost welcomed it. Brooke went to work like the pro that she was. In Brooke's version of the story, she wasn't in the car with her mother, and though she suspected her mother was drunk at the time of the crash, she also implied that the Teamsters had disabled the brakes in Terry's car in retaliation after Terry complained about the long hours Brooke was working. Brooke also accused Polly and especially Tony Wade, who was the unit production manager on Pretty Baby, of bullying and intimidating the child actress to keep the shoot on schedule. The story told in a New York Magazine story about Brooke, published in September 1977 before the movie was released, hewed a bit closer to Polly's account. According to Polly, after she saw Brooke's mom kick in a TV in their shared hotel room on one occasion and slap her daughter on another, Polly was able to convince Terry to go someplace to dry out and leave the production in peace for a few weeks. In the New York Magazine story, Terry claims she was kicked off set. She also jokes about her 12-year-old daughter's breasts, which she refers to alternately as her, quote, little titties and, quote, little knobs. In that same story, when asked to defend the sexual material Brooke performed in the film, Polly was quoted as saying, I was more worried about Brooke's family problems than the sex scenes. Obviously, this is all very thorny stuff, made more so by the fact that Polly was also an alcoholic and that while Polly was separating Brooke from her mother, Polly's own daughters were back in Los Angeles without their mother. This whole film had started out of Polly's desire to repair her relationship with Sashi and Antonia by being more present in their lives. But now she was 2,000 miles away from them and spending her days looking after another alcoholic mother's daughter. Polly was spending her nights drinking with the Pretty Baby crew, which included her boyfriend, Tony. Tony didn't like having his girlfriend, the producer of the movie, telling him what to do. This might have led Polly to dance close to the line of shirking her professional responsibilities in order to keep Tony happy. On weekends, Big Tony and I and several of the crew would go canoeing over the swiftly running waters that fed into Lake Pontchartrain. We drank excessively and took quaaludes as well. Sundays were drug days on the river. One Sunday, we were so drunk that we passed the point where we were to meet up with a driver to take us back to New Orleans. We had to pull our canoes up under a freeway bridge and hitchhike. With us were the entire main crew of the movie, and somehow, in my haze of drugs and alcohol, I realized how foolhardy these excursions were. If we didn't get back in time, there would be no Monday shoot. But we did hitch a ride, and Monday went on as usual. Lucky is all I can say now. Finally, on Sashi and Antonia's spring break from school, the girls visited their mom on set. Polly put Antonia to work, doubling for 11-year-old Brooke. Antonia appears in the movie in a number of shots, seen from behind. Polly remembered this vividly, writing about a moment when her daughter failed to perform an action exactly as the director wanted her to. 
Louis yelled at her. I wanted to kill him. Antonia was in tears. When I asked Antonia about this, she said she barely remembered it. And the fact that this traumatic moment stayed with her mother and not her says so much about the guilt Polly felt. Watching one of her daughters cry in this situation she had created out of a desire to improve her relationship with her kids. Pretty Baby is a fascinating movie under any lens, but it's more fascinating when you think about it as a thinly veiled autobiography of its writer, a woman who feared she was trapped in a cycle of mothers abandoning and traumatizing their daughters. She even gave the Susan Sarandon character, who leaves sex work to marry a respectable John and leaves her 12-year-old daughter behind in the brothel, the last name Mar, which was Polly's own mother's maiden name. And Antonia saw an even more timely parallel to her mother's then-current life. Weirdly enough, you know the man that Susan marries... I feel like that was a little bit of Tony Wade because he gave her, like, in a different way when she already had two kids, he gave her a different life that Peter didn't give her. It wasn't a financial thing. It was more like a security thing. In fact, after the pretty baby shoot at home in L.A., Polly found a moment of true family stability with Big Tony and Sashi and Little Tony and Tony's two kids, Kelly and John who would soon come to live with Polly and her kids during the school year. Polly's transition to screenwriting made news. Between 1976 and 1978, she was profiled in multiple publications, each of which dramatized the reinvention of what Women's Wear Daily called the little woman behind the man. In January 1978, four months before Pretty Baby opened, the Los Angeles Times made her the subject of a large, rambling profile in their Sunday calendar section, which presented to the industry a new Polly Platt. Polly was the author of her own transformation. She even began to shave a few years off her age, now claiming to be 37 instead of 39. The L.A. Times story began with the assertion that Polly's emergence from secondary roles on film productions was a victory of the women's movement. But Polly didn't consider herself to be part of the women's movement. And throughout the profile, she revealed her feeling that she had not played a secondary role in collaboration with her ex-husband. As she was quoted as saying... Writing is all I ever wanted to do from the day I met Peter. I worked with him page by page, as a wife, as a compatriot, certainly editorially, and we discussed my getting credit. He would be furious to hear that, but I don't know any other way to say it. I suppose there are hundreds and hundreds of wives of famous men, particularly writers, who can say that. We had always worked like little communists together with one idea in mind, to become filmmakers— and I was always assured of a place there as his wife and, as everyone knew, his collaborator. Polly went on to call her ex a consummately brilliant filmmaker. I really regretted the loss of Peter as a collaborator. I know we're both heartbroken about it, somewhere. 
but I recovered. And what I've done now is terribly important to me. At last, I've written my own. Something of my own. All mine. The LA Times article put forth the narrative that Polly was rising just as Peter had hit rock bottom. It noted that Bogdanovich was about to start production on St. Jack. His attempt at a comeback after three consecutive flops had sent his career, quote, into a tailspin. In fact, every film Peter had made since Paper Moon, since Polly had stopped working with him, had been a commercial failure. First, there was Daisy Miller, a Henry James adaptation starring Sybil Shepard, who was widely perceived as having been miscast by her besotted boyfriend. That perception carried over into the couple's next collaboration, the musical At Long Last Love, a 1930s period piece which Peter built for Sybil around their mutual love of Cole Porter tunes. A sort of meta-1970s version of a Fred and Ginger musical, except in color and with partner-swapping and hangovers. At Long Last Love features Sybil and Burt Reynolds singing live with no sweetening or dubbing. It got withering reviews, and its distributor barely released it. It was with the release of At Long Last Love that the backlash against Peter and Sybil's relationship hit in full force. Since 1974, the pair had been living together at Copa de Oro, an opulent mansion in Bel Air, where they were photographed more than once by magazines like People. In interviews, the couple seemed totally unremorseful about the infidelity that instigated their relationship and openly bragged about cohabitating with no intention of getting married. They were, in this sense, the poster children for one version of post-sexual revolution decadence. Peter and Sybil then went separate ways, at least professionally. Shepard co-starred in Taxi Driver, while Bogdanovich directed Nickelodeon, a comedy about the Wild West days of silent Hollywood. Though the film featured the on-screen reunion of Ryan and Tatum O'Neill, Nickelodeon became Bogdanovich's third flop in a row. After taking some time to regroup, Peter went to Singapore to film St. Jack, and when Sybil came to visit him, it became apparent to her that he was having a relationship with actress Monica Sabraniam. Sybil soon thereafter got pregnant by and married her first husband, David Ford. After nearly a decade, the affair that had broken up Polly's marriage was now over, and the perception in Hollywood was that it had also broken Peter Bogdanovich's career. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Sybil would write in her autobiography that the backlash to the films she and Peter made together owed to a delayed reaction to her original sin of adultery. But when I talked to people who knew Peter and Polly before and after their divorce, no one mentioned Sybil's sin as being the problem. No one I spoke to blamed Sybil at all. The problem, they all said, was that Peter had lost something creatively when he lost Polly. Frank Marshall said this most diplomatically. I thought they were the perfect couple, you know, that um, they did everything together. They were really a collaborative, creative force and, you know, um, contributed so much to each other. It was kind of magical. You know, and I don't think either of them were as good apart as they were together. All of this is to say that by the time Pretty Baby was nearing release in 1978, the climate was thus right for the biggest newspaper in Los Angeles to put into print the feeling, already palpable in the industry, that maybe Polly had been the secret weapon that had made Bogdanovich's first four features so special, and that without her, he was lost. The attention paid to Peter and Sybil positive or negative, had obscured the collateral damage of their coupling. It didn't see Polly, the jilted wife and mother, whose efforts to build her career separate from her unfaithful former husband, were hampered by her desire to raise her two young children, just as her desire to be a good mother was compromised by her need, financial and creative, to work in movies. Hollywood in the 1970s, and particularly media covering Hollywood in the 1970s, didn't really know what to do with a professional, creative woman anyway. And it was as if the only way to make sense of Polly taking charge of her own narrative by writing Pretty Baby was to try to squeeze her and Peter into the template of A Star is Born. In order for a woman to rise... A man must fall. This narrative stuck to Peter and Polly, probably in part because Hollywood can't resist that a star is born essence, and partially because Peter reacted as though to give credit to Polly was to take away something from him. As Rachel Abramowitz puts it, I mean, I think Peter's very stung by the fact that people began to celebrate Polly, and it sort of like has her 
star rose, his went down. It's like there was only one piece of pie and they had to share the pie. And if Polly had more of the pie, then Peter had less of the pie. And it was, and I don't know. I'm sure it's most couples you will get <laughs> different views of what happened in the marriage. Of course. At the end of the 70s, it looked like the pendulum of Peter's career was swinging back up. St. Jack won a prize at the Venice Film Festival and began to reverse the tailspin of Peter's career. He started work on another film featuring Gazzara, this time set in modern-day New York. It was going to be called They All Laughed, and Peter decided to cast his daughters, Sashi and Antonia, as the daughters of the private detective, played by Gazzara. What did Polly think about this movie and her daughter's involvement in it? Co-parenting aside, Polly hadn't been involved with Peter's personal or professional lives for many years by this point, other than lamenting that other filmmakers failed to work with her as collaboratively and respectfully as her ex-husband in her memoir, Polly completely ignores Peter between the day Paper Moon wraps in 1972 and the day in 1980 when Sashi and Antonia leave Los Angeles for the shooting of They All Laughed. The truth was, Polly had other things to think about. For years, Big Tony had been suffering from a mysterious illness— Polly and Tony tried to keep it a secret because Tony had to work and no one in Hollywood wanted to hire a sick person. His body would be covered with welts and hives and his joints would ache terribly. Eventually, Tony was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, similar to lupus. He was told his illness could be treated but not cured. Polly was terrified that Tony was about to die. She was not quite 40, and she had already outlived one husband and divorced another. Sashi and Antonia had come to rely on Tony as a stepfather, and Polly couldn't bear to imagine the girls losing another parent, just when their home life finally seemed stable. She wanted Tony to stay alive, and when she asked his doctor if alcohol was making him sicker, the doctor said... Just let him drink as much as he wants. Polly was so depressed at this recommendation that she began drinking even more. But then Polly became convinced that if she and Tony quit drinking, he would live longer. And together they went cold turkey. Not knowing how much time he had left, he asked Polly to marry him. And she said yes. They tied the knot on January 29th, 1979, Polly's 40th birthday. We had a wonderful wedding at the house, and everybody came. It was a sober one for Big Tony and I, and we went off to Mexico for our honeymoon. On the plane, I started drinking, and Tony, ever ready, joined me on my drinking spree. During our honeymoon, we got so drunk that we fell asleep in the sun, and both of us got sunsickness. I was particularly upset that his skin seemed ready to burst with the burn. He was very sick. He was taking such serious medication to control the symptoms of his disease that we had to sign a paper saying that we understood that Cytoxan, one of them, could kill him. 
He insisted on eating as he always had, bacon and eggs, but I was frantic for him to change his diet. He was very stubborn and wouldn't listen to me. He also drank heavily. I became very nervous and high-strung and lost a lot of weight worrying about him. I drank with him. It soothed my nerves and softened the evenings. But as usual, I began to overdo it. Tony and Polly bought a sailboat as a distraction from his health struggles. Polly wrote another movie called Good Luck, Miss Wyckoff, though she was not involved in its production. She started renovating her house to make room for her stepchildren, Kelly and John. And then, tragedy struck in the form of one of the most violent and high-profile murders of the era. When the girls returned from their part of the They All Laughed shoot, they very mysteriously talked of a new girlfriend that Peter had. Soon it became apparent that the girl was the beautiful playboy bunny Dorothy Stratton, who was married. There's a whole you-must-remember-this episode about Dorothy Stratton, which we released in 2017. You should go back and listen to it for her full story. Here, we're only going to tell the parts of Dorothy's story that directly impacted Polly and her daughters. Dorothy was 20, about 7 years older than Antonia and 10 years older than Sashi. She became friendly with Peter's daughters, and her beauty and fame as a Playboy model fascinated and puzzled the young Bogdanovich girls. We were staying at the Plaza Hotel, and I was like a little rebellious little 12-year-old already. Dorothy's Playboy Playman of the Year issue was out. It was May 1980. And it was selling downstairs in the plaza thing. Well, I stole one of them. They were never going to let me buy it. I couldn't even charge it to my hotel. I had no business stealing, but of course I stole it. And me and my sister went upstairs. And my sister was like, nine, eight. And we're looking at the pictures of Dorothy in the magazine. And we're like, what? It didn't compute. She looked, I hate to say this, she looked, she looked fake and plastic to us. I'm like, this isn't the person that I know at all. Antonia's mother was shocked to meet the playmate in the flesh a few months later when Dorothy came to her house to pick up Antonia to take her to Magic Mountain. I remember that she reminded me of Marilyn Monroe in some of those newsreels after a suicide attempt where she seemed sweet and broken. She didn't look at all like the Playboy Playmate of 1980. The way Polly writes about what happened next is an example of how, at times, she's able to recall the past with a clarity for what it's like to be in a moment and not know everything you would come to understand years in the future. It's a fascinating portrait of how death comes in and turns the screw. And life goes on as best it can, But nothing is right, and the reverberations last a long time, and the grief keeps coming back to distort and mutate the people affected by it, causing a kind of paralysis or insanity. Peter finished shooting his movie, and Antonia and Sashi went to spend the summer with him at his house in Bel Air. Tony was away on a picture in San Francisco when early Saturday, August 14th, I got a strange call. 
A man was on the line, screaming hysterically, asking to speak to Peter Bogdanovich. I explained that he didn't live here, and after trying to reason with the man to no avail, I hung up in disgust. I remember making myself some hot tea, thinking that the man was probably a disgruntled actor or something, and sat musing about how I was glad I wasn't married to Peter anymore. I wondered what that phone call was all about. I sipped my tea and enjoyed the comfort of my newly renovated home and thought about how my stepchildren, Kelly and John, would love their new rooms. I don't remember how it was that I found out that Dorothy was murdered by her jealous husband, Paul, who had sodomized her and then committed suicide himself by shotgun. Perhaps it was the police who came to my house and asked me questions. Because that phone call with that hysterical man asking for Peter Bogdanovich was made from the apartment where Dorothy was murdered and they apparently thought I might know something about the murder-suicide. They showed me color pictures of the murder scene and there was Dorothy, dead on the bed with an army of ants climbing along the wall and onto her dead and bloody face. I was horrified. But soon they realized that it was nothing to do with me. Probably that phone call was from her husband trying to reach Peter. Maybe he found my phone number in her phone book that she carried in her purse. Who knows? Under Bogdanovich, she could have had the children's number, my number. I'll never know. Forty years later, Antonia's memory of that day remains vivid. So Dorothy had left the previous day on August 14th. She left and said that she was going to come back in the evening and then she never came home. And we didn't know she'd gone over to Paul's house. And Dorothy's sister, Louise Stratton, was visiting from Canada. So my dad was still waiting for her at midnight and I was still awake and he was very nervous. So I feel like I knew there was something wrong, but he hadn't heard from her and, you know, there were no cell phones. She hadn't called. He didn't know where she was. She was already dead at that point, I think, at eight or nine or midnight. And then I guess right after I went to sleep, Hugh Hefner called my dad and broke the news to him. I woke up in the morning and I ran out to the driveway of my dad's Beller home to look for Dorothy's car, the Mustang, the Ford Mustang, which was a really funky car for her to be driving, which was cool, you know, because uh, she was very sophisticated and well-dressed and poised in this, this like kind of funky older car. I thought it was really cool. So when her car wasn't there, my first thought as a young girl at 12 and when all the experience I'd already had was she's dead, no girl that pretty could stay alive all night in LA and survive. And then I found out my mom called like less than an hour later and told broke the news. Polly had to be the one to tell her daughters that Dorothy was dead because, as she recalled, Peter had completely collapsed and couldn't talk to the children. When they finally were allowed to see him, he was convulsed in tears and Antonia said he put his head on her lap and just wept uncontrollably. All I could think about, other than my horror of the situation, was that my children were there and I could do nothing to extract them from that drama-filled mansion. Nine-year-old Sashi called me and asked me what sodomy was. I asked her to come home. She wouldn't come. The whole drama of the murder made both the children want to stay in the Bel Air mansion with their father. This is just the beginning of the reverberations of the murder of Dorothy Stratton. 
Of course, Peter Bogdanovich's life was greatly affected, as was his career, which we discussed in our episode about Stratton, which we'll link to in the show notes of this episode. But because Peter and Polly still shared custody of their two daughters, this tragedy in Peter's life had an impact on all of their lives. We will discuss this more next week in an episode in which we'll explain how this very dark moment for her family gave way to the film that would change Polly's life and career. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guest, Maggie Siff, who read the words of Polly Platt from Polly's unpublished memoir, It Was Worth It, and other sources. Today's episode included excerpts from interviews with Antonia Bogdanovich, Frank Marshall, Nessa Himes, and Rachel Abramowitz. Special thanks to them and everyone else who took the time to talk about Polly Platt with us. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Brendan Whalen is in charge of our social media and does additional research assistance. Additional research assistance and transcription by Kristen Sales and Wiley Wiggins. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Today's episode was produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio was edited by Tamika Weatherspoon and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, And we're also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth. Or buy merch for our show at podswag.com slash remember. Keep up with all of our episodes by subscribing on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Stitcher. 